You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. And our scripture reading tonight is from Exodus chapter 21, beginning with verse 23 through 36. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast shall they share also. For if it is known that the ox has been accustomed, or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. This is God's holy word. Father, even in a strange and foreign word such as this, we are thankful for it. So we pray now what we just sang. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand its meaning then and its meaning now in our own hearts and minds. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And here we go. Here we go. We have officially arrived at the place in your Bible where you stop reading your Bible reading plan. Uh, Starting like on New Year's Day or something, if you start a Bible in a year reading plan, uh, you've been plowing through the narrative of Genesis and Exodus. Some of those parts were tedious and perhaps didn't make a ton of sense to your modern American ears, but even though there's been some confusion, you've mostly been tracking, right? Uh, The Exodus story has been moving on at a compelling and steady pace. Again, some weirdness, but it's a pretty good story. Uh, Then Israel comes to the mountain at Exodus 19. Kind of strange, getting a little weirder, but okay. And then he gives the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. You can agree that some of those are good principles. You might even pause for some personal application and reflection through those. And then you get to the end of chapter 20. Right before where Byron started reading this evening, there's like altars 
the kinds of altars that sacrifices can be made on. Uh, these altars are be, to be on uh, pieces of rock that have not been hewn or cut by any human hands. The, these altars can't have any uh, steps on them. And then chapter 21, lots of laws, laws about slavery. Like you didn't see that one coming, maybe? Like you thought the Bible, even the law of God was supposed to be a moral law. Slavery is certainly super immoral. So what in the world do we do with that? Especially when it appears like women are being treated unfairly or worse than, than others. What we just had Byron read, the end of chapter 21, starts talking a lot about some seemingly random, seemingly uh, weird scenarios about oxen. Anybody have an ox? If you dig a pit, and if your ox falls into the pit that you didn't cover. And then chapter 22 just keeps going on and on about livestock and about hired workers and about more slaves. And then you get to 22.16 and following, where you read... If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lives, lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Like what in the world? All of this seems so backward and so weird. We've been moving along through the book of Exodus, and then we come upon this. What do we do with it all? In 2007, a a secular Jewish guy tried to live a whole year in strict obedience to the law. He tried to worship God alone. He tried to never lie over a whole year. He tried to never covet. Uh, But then, even more than that, he would throw pebbles at his gay friends. He would throw pebbles at his friends who he knew were committing adultery in an effort to stone them. This guy is a secular Jewish guy. He says he's, he's about as Jewish as like Olive Garden is an actual Italian restaurant. But uh, he, uh, is he, this secular Jewish guy, taking the Bible more seriously than we are? Supposedly people of the book that we are. Is this what we should do? Should we try to live as he did? If not, why not? And if not, is there any lasting benefit of all of this that we just heard read and even more for us today as Christians? Or should we just throw the whole thing out? Like, shouldn't it be better or wouldn't it be better if we do have a Bible reading plan to just skip these chapters? They are clearly not applicable today. Well, these are a lot of questions that hopefully we can try to get get some answers to in the next half hour or so. So we've got a lot of work to do. I told you last week that we're going to get through the end of chapter 24. That ain't happening. Uh, We're not even going to get through the end of chapter 23. I lied. Uh, I bit off way more than I could chew when I said that last week. So, but I think this will be good for us. Uh, To try to get some of the answers to those questions, we're going to ask two questions. A little bit different than we've been asking over the past 10 weeks in the Ten Commandments, but a little different, but a little the same. What is the law, and then how do we keep it? So first of all, what is the law? Here's something weird. I'm going to say something weird, but I think it's true, that the law is not comprehensive. What do I mean by that? What we're thinking about today in Exodus 20 through 23 is often called the Book of the Covenant. This is what Moses, in fact, calls it. 
uh, at the end of chapter 23. And while later laws will be given in Exodus about the tabernacle and about the sacrificial system, and then even more, li- more laws, many similar to the ones that we heard read today about like civil interpersonal laws, about how individual Israelites are to live amongst themselves uh, later on in Leviticus and New- Numbers in Deuteronomy, even through all of that, the law is hardly comprehensive. There are just so many aspects of everyday Hebrew life, not just modern American life, but everyday ancient Hebrew life that just don't appear. There are some laws for interpersonal conflict, but not every possible conflict that one could imagine. A couple of months ago, we thought about the word Torah itself. The word Torah just means instruction or teaching. It actually, this word Torah doesn't mean the law, but just instruction, teaching. There are words in Hebrew that are used elsewhere for what we mean when we might say and mean words like the law, words like regulations or ordinances or statutes or something like that. We also thought about how Hebrew letters are also numbers. And so the word when you read Torah is actually also a number. And this number is 611. Not coincidentally, pre-modern Hebrew rabbis noted that there are 611 laws given to us in the Torah. The law seems to be a representative sampling, a snapshot of the divine wisdom of God, of this teaching and instruction. In fact, when later biblical writers talk about the Torah, about Torah, it it mostly appears that they aren't just and merely talking about a list of regulations or statutes. They're talking about the narrative in which these statutes or regulations appear. The Torah is, in its entirety, not just a list of rules, but the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in which many of these laws and regulations appear. Now, it seems weird to us. We would never, ever, ever write a novel in the way that the biblical authors have given us, especially uh, these first five books of the Bible. It seems really random. It seems really herky-jerky and disjointed. Like there is a narrative and then a section of laws and then more narrative and then some things go wrong and some things go right and then more laws and then more narrative. And it just continues this way throughout the rest of the Torah. But the law appearing how and where it does has narrative and actual storytelling purposes. We'll think through those purposes in a bit. But the Torah, all of it, the whole of the first five books of the Bible, not just the legal rules, but all of it are a representative snapshot, a representative sampling of the divine wisdom of God, of what God desires for his people. How even with not just Moses and the people here, but men and women like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Joseph, among many others throughout the Torah, about how they were to hear God's word and then by faith respond to it. So what do we do with all of this? I'm going to try to give us a few principles to work through and to think through as we read the Torah and as we read the book of the covenant, these laws in 20, Exodus 20 through 23 in its original context. Here's a first principle for us to think through. That the book of the covenant, the law, was given to a specific people in a specific time. As we mentioned several times over the past month, Israel is in the middle of a wedding ceremony. Beginning in chapter 19, uh, they have come to the mountain, and they are getting married. 
They are wedding themselves. They are entering into covenant with Yahweh, with the God of Abraham. In chapter 24, Moses is going to confirm and then ratify this covenant in a very strange way. If you want to read ahead to chapter 24, the whole thing begins in 19 and ends in 24, and then there's this a bunch of covenant going on in the middle, which is what we are reading now. Now, there are certainly implications for future generations. Future generations are to live into the realities of this covenant and into these rules, these laws, these regulations. They are to keep the sacrificial system, which is an expectation, expectation that they will not live into these realities. But the first thing that we need to understand is that this covenant is not an eternal and perpetually ongoing covenant of law. There was a, if you like, a planned obsolescence to this thing. You know, planned obsolescence, right? Like why, how your phone company or your TV company will make a TV or a phone so that it will not last forever. I read that uh, GE, if they wanted to, could make a light bulb that would last you 100 years, but they will not do that. Why would they not do that? Because then you only need to buy one light bulb for the rest of your life. They need to stay in business. The law was not designed to last for eternity. It was not built with an eternal battery that would never, that would always be ongoing. In a few minutes, we'll get to how and when the battery runs out. But as we're reading the Bible and as we're thinking about how the law applies to us, we need to be ongoingly asking ourselves a question of when are we? As we're reading, not just where geographically are we, are we, but when in the timeline of this story of redemption are we? When are we, as we're currently reading, what stories are we reading about then? When are we? And now, when are we now? So these are good questions to be asking. It's, a, it's been a couple of years since I've shared this illustration, but one of my favorite current pastors in England uh, explains it like this. If, if, if Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee, they're, they're climbing up Mount Doom, they are at the end of their long quest to destroy the ring of power. They're almost to the top of the mountain, and Frodo pops up and says, wait a minute, like, we cannot go on. We have to go back. We have to go to the prancing pony at Bree. Gandalf, the wizard, he told us to meet, us, meet him at this inn, the prancing pony. We must go to the prancing pony now. Like, Sam would be right to say, what are you talking about? We're, that was a long time ago. That was months, if not years ago. We are almost here. That was a command for then, not now. Those commands that Gandalf gave at the beginning of the story now do not apply as the story has now moved on and as Sam and Frodo are well past the time and the place for them to meet Gandalf at the Prancing Pony. The law was giving, given to a specific people in a specific time. Israel here lives in a federal theocracy where every member of the country has entered into covenant with Yahweh. Remember we talked about many months ago, or many weeks ago at least, that it was very strange for two kings of ancient uh, kingdoms uh, they, they would make treaties with one another, covenants with one another, but it would be very strange for a king to make a covenant with the entirety of another nation. That's un, almost unheard of. And yet this is what's happening here, that God is making a treaty, a covenant with the entirety, every individual that makes up a priestly kingdom of Israel. Which is why it's such a big deal for like an individual sorceress, a, a witch, 
to be summoning up powers that are not Yahweh, that are for her to be, as an individual, be perhaps even uh, acting on behalf of others to be devoting herself to a spiritually divine power other than God. That's a big, big deal, even though that sounds very, very strange to us. So God's law was given at, to a specific people in a specific, specific time. A second principle that we can think through and begin to understand the law in a little bit better way and a little bit more clearly is that the laws were given to distinctly mark off Israel as God's people. This is a principle that would have made a ton of sense to Israel as they are receiving the laws. They receive these seemingly strange and random laws, but they kind of understand what's going on here. We, millennia later and cultures apart, can lose much of this in translation. The, the reason that Israel isn't to make their altars into steps like we see at the very beginning, at the, the end of chapter 20, is because a stepped altar was a Canaanite practice. Everyone who heard uh, don't carve and make a stepped altar would say, oh yeah, basically we're not, make, we're not to make altars to Baal. We're to make altars to Yahweh. And yet we here don't make a stepped altar. And we're like, what in the world? That's kind of weird. They aren't to tattoo themselves in Leviticus 19 because this is what priests of Baal and other Canaanite gods would have done to themselves. God does not want his people to be confused with Baal worshipers. So much of this gets lost on us today. Also in Leviticus 19, the people there are not to sew uh, clothing from themselves from different kinds of fabric or different kinds of material. The priests were not only allowed to, but commanded to uh, sew their garments from both wool and linen. The priests were, but the people were not. They were supposed to only wear clothing just of wool or just of linen. Don't blend your materials. This sounds so arbitrary and stupid and random and weird and backward to us today, but the people have heard this and said, oh yeah, like even uh, the, the nations surrounding them, the priestly class would have had uh, blended material to separate, separate themselves, to mark themselves off as distinct from the people. And so these ancient Israelites would have heard that and say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Whereas we're like, no polyester and cotton blends? That sounds weird. But an ancient Israelite would have totally understood this. Here's the point. Just because you do not understand a law in 2019 does not mean that it wouldn't make total sense to an ancient Israelite. In fact, the whole, like, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is like the last law on 23, 19, verse, chapter 23, verse 19. That thing is really weird, right? Do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Weird. In fact, that very law is repeated three times in the Torah. That sounds like a pretty important law that keeps, get re, keeps getting reiterated. That law right there is why kosher laws require you to not mix food from the same animal. That law right there is why it is against kosher code to have a cheeseburger. Cheese made from milk cannot touch the burger, the, the, the patty made from, from the cow. It appears that tradition of kosher laws, which came like a thousand or two after Sinai, even these rabbis, a thousand or two years, two, a thousand or two thousand years later after this, were like, what in the world? I have no idea what to do with this boil the baby goat in its mother's milk thing. Uh, we, how about we just understand that law to mean that we don't mix foods up from the same animal? They're trying to obey 
the law and its implications as strictly as they could. But here's the thing. Pretty recently, uh, a Ugaritic uh, archaeological dig revealed this previously unknown to modern culture, uh, this temple, this sacrificial system of some Canaanite folks, where Canaanite folks were boiling baby goats in the mother's milk as a way to sacrifice and devote these sacrifices to their Canaanite gods. So perhaps when an ancient Israelite hears this law, they're like, oh, okay, we are to sacrifice to Yahweh. We are not to sacrifice like the people surrounding us. The kosher tradition, which is still so ancient in our own minds, was so far past the original audience that the meaning intent of the law was perhaps likely missed entirely. Perhaps we should encourage our Jewish friends to eat cheeseburgers now because that thing was about a Ugaritic, like, uh, sacrificial system. Just enjoy the cheeseburger, man. Not to mention the freedom that Christ brings, but we'll get that. We'll get to that in a minute. Even the kosher laws themselves, like all of the meats and the animals that the Israelites were to not eat, were to not touch, were to avoid altogether, was a way for God to keep his people separate and distinct from the surrounding nations. Here's the thing. This people had grown immensely in number. They had grown into a multitude of people. Many of the promises to Abraham had, were beginning to come true. There were, there were so many of them. But they had grown as a people living in Egypt, living surrounded by Egyptian culture. They're bringing many of Egyptian gods and customs and expectations with them. Now, God was about to give them their own land, and he was going to give them their own land that they might kind of incubate, that they might be separate, and that they might incubate in their own culture and tradition of distinctness from the nations, of knowing God and being in covenant relationship distinct from the nations, separate and distinct with pure worship to the God who had saved them. And yet, while they were to be distinct, even in their uh, food laws and many other strange laws that are foreign to our ears, that does not mean that they were meant to hate the nations, condemn the nations surrounding them. God called their father Abraham in order that his children Israel might bless the nations, which gets us to our third principle. First, that the law was for a distinct people in a distinct time, and that the law was given, secondly, to mark off Israel as distinct. But third, that the laws were given that the nations might see and observe a new way to be human. That the nations might see and observe the wisdom of God. God says this in Deuteronomy 4, 6 about the law. He says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The first half of chapter 21 makes us very uncomfortable. If you didn't read the book of the covenant this week, maybe you can go back and just read all of these laws uh, this week. And I'm just telling you, read the first half of chapter 21 and it's going to make you feel uneasy. Like you're reading about slavery you're reading about how Israel is to handle families who become slaves or what happens when two slaves have children and what you're supposed to do with all of these slaves. And you're thinking, I thought that if God was going to start a brand new society and a brand new people, he would have made it at least better than the American South in the early 1800s. 
But here's the thing. It was. We don't have time to go through the ins and outs of these laws for slavery, but the kind of slavery that appears in the Bible, especially the Old Testament Hebrew kind of slavery, was always voluntary, meaning the slave had sold himself or sold herself into slavery to pay off debt. Kidnapping someone into slavery, like the transatlantic slave trade, would have brought death, the death penalty to this slave trader. Anyone who kidnapped another human being was put to death under the Mosaic law. This kind of slavery was voluntary, it was temporary, and this kind of slavery always led to freedom. Instead of someone's way of life being ruined by debt, either the person uh, owed this person or could even have this person who is uh, indebted to this person killed for not paying their debt, like in many of the surrounding nations, or just having their debt prolonged for the rest of their life. In Israel, this person who was indebted to another could sell himself or sell herself into slavery to pay off this debt. But then every seven years, the debts were completely wiped off. There was a year of jubilee in which every single slave in Israel would have and experience complete freedom for the rest of their lives. That kind of slavery was unheard of in the ancient world. Israel was to be different, was to be a people of mercy, was to be a people of justice, was to be a people of love, even in the ways in which they treated and cared for their slaves, which again, to our modern sensibilities, sounds so terribly backward and awkward. But this Bible is not a golden tablet that is just floated down from heaven that appears to us today in 2019. But it is a, the word of God given to a people in history. Israel is to be different. And I know you don't believe me, but even the laws that seem so backward and cruel against women were a way to provide and care for single women, were a way to care for potentially vulnerable women, especially when compared to the surrounding nations around them and the ways that the surrounding nations treated women. In fact, the only reason that we have these sensibilities of like that some humans should be cared for, this human should be cared for, in fact, all humans should be cared for equally because we all have dignity, that is unheard of. Like walk into a Babylonian king and say, hey, I'd like to be treated the same as you because I carry equal dignity. You know what happens if you say that? He kills you, right? The only reason we have these modern expectations of human dignity is because of the very context in which the law is coming to Israel. The law is given as a representative snapshot, as a way to teach Israel to be a distinct people of love, to care for the weak, to care for the marginalized, to care for the vulnerable amongst them. They're also even to care for their enemy, even in situations that aren't even enforceable. Check this one out in 20, Exodus 23, verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Like, there's not a penalty given here. There's not a, if this happens, then this punishment or uh, judgment is given. There's no penalty given here because if a person doesn't do this, no one will know that they didn't actually do it, right? 
If I see my enemy's oxen wandering away, I can just kind of turn my back and no one knows that I didn't do it. One commentator commentator says this about that law. This law gets closer to the heart of the matter, treating all Israelites with love, whether one loves them or not. My enemy, my enemy's ox. Israelites are to deal fairly. They are to deal lovingly with everyone in their midst, fellow countrymen, whether poor or rich, enemies, and even non-Israelites, the aliens. As a kingdom of priests, they are not to oppress those to whom they are to, re- they are to reflect the glory of God. Here, listen to this. Having experienced firsthand man's inhumanity to man in Egypt, right? They've experienced this for the last four centuries of experiencing inhumanity from other men. They are now to turn around and exemplify the opposite behavior, God's love for all. Even the eye for an eye law that Byron read from chapter 21, right? That was the very first thing he read, and you're like, oh boy, this is weird, right? It sounds so barbaric. It sounds so archaic. But even that was a law that urged patience, that urged self-control. Like, if you intentionally or even unintentionally poked my eye out, I could, perhaps if I was living in a different culture, respond in such, such anger because you have now ruined my way of life that I might kill you. Not in this culture, not in this society. I'm only to respond just towards your eye, not your life. And even then, the offender itself, the offender is to give or to pay. The offender is to pay eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It is not intended to be taken, meaning I am to love my neighbor and my society so much that if I were to offend or harm another in such a way, I poked out one of your eyes, it is not your responsibility to come and take my eye. If I poke out your eye, I am, suppo- I am meant to have a framework and way of thinking in such as such that I will seek restit- restitution. I will seek reconciliation. I will give you my eye. That's weird but it is right. Israel is to be distinct from the nations so that they might actually bless the nations with the wisdom of God and the love of God. If they are no different from the nations, then they are the nations. I'm not saying, again, we'll we'll talk about this in just a second, that if I poke out Ryan Scott's eye, I'm going to now poke out my eye. But the principle behind this, you want me to? All right. (laughs) Uh, The principle of this, of restitution, of caring for one another, of of equal dignity amongst humans is here. So, in addition to everything that we've already thought through over the past 10 weeks, this is a decent start, I think, at helping, helping us understand what the law is. So now let's try to answer, especially now, living in 2019, how do we keep it? This is the question that we've danced around even tonight, but over the past two months, but that we've never quite answered is, okay, oh, that's really interesting, but which laws are still in effect today? How can we say today that you still should not steal or murder or commit adultery, but it is now suddenly cool for you to go get a tattoo or for you to eat a pulled pork sandwich or some fried shrimp or to wear a poly blend polyester cotton t-shirt 
and then say, all right, you can do all those things, but then you kind of still try to enforce some form of ancient sexual morality. That seems backward and picking and choosing. Well, some Christians in the past couple of hundred years have tried to divide the law into three sections. Maybe you've heard or read this, that the three sections of the law, the so-called moral, civil, and ceremonial uh, distinctions of the law, the divisions of the law. Jesus has fulfilled the civil and the ceremonial parts of the law in his kingdom and in his cross, it's argued, but the moral parts still go on. Well, that's a neat and clean division. The problem is, is that the Bible never does that. The Bible never divides the law into three parts. And then it becomes really, really difficult even as we read to, if we've got these three little pots of kinds of laws to figure out which ones are moral and then which ones are now civil and which ones are ceremonial, then it kind of becomes right back where we started from of just kind of picking and choosing which moral laws we think are still moral laws and which ones are, say, civil. So how do the New Testament writers themselves deal with the Old Testament law? We could even almost boil down every single New Testament book or letter into one underlying theme. What do we do with the law? Well, first of all, what does Jesus do with the law? All of the gospel writers have deep theological interest in the law and what Jesus has come to do, but perhaps most of all, of all four of the gospel writers, Matthew has a very distinct, well, not distinct, but keen interest in all of this. In the first four chapters, of Matthew's gospel, Matthew is going at painstaking lengths to show Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's story. He begins right off the bat in the genealogy of Jesus in chapter one. And then just as, Je- just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea and then into the wilderness for 40 years before coming into the land and beginning their conquest, Matthew goes to painstaking lengths to show that Jesus goes through the waters of his baptism. And then he goes out into the wilderness, not for 40 years of temptation, but for 40 days. And he succeeds in obedience where Israel failed. Before, then he crosses the Jordan River again, just like Israel did, and begins his conquest of the land. So, if we've got all of this in mind through the first four chapters of Matthew, then in Matthew 5, Jesus goes up to a mountain perhaps as a new, mount, a new Moses on the mountain with a new law. And he says this in Matthew 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass. It's like a, not a little mark or a little like a dot on the top of an eye. None of those will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Even this is very confusing. And so many Christians throughout the centuries have disagreed on what Jesus is actually teaching. I think what we can all agree on is that Jesus has come to fulfill the law not only to keep the law in a perfectly external way, but to keep the meaning, the intention of the law, that of loving God and loving neighbor in a contented joy, to take and receive God's word and then obey in faith. But how in the world 
can someone exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Jesus says, you, one who responds to the law must do so in a way that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. How in the world can you do that? Like, they are keeping the law strictly and meticulously. Perhaps in a way that if we kept a 24-hour surveillance camera on these Pharisees, you might not be able to uh, identify where they're breaking the law. So how can you exceed that? Well, after explaining the heart behind many of the laws in chapter 5, we've already thought through these over the past many weeks, not just no murder, but no hate, not just no committing adultery, but no lust. Jesus says in five, Matthew 5, verse 48, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, our English word perfect there isn't terribly helpful here because its meaning isn't really that of moral perfection. Jesus is not saying be completely without any moral imperfection in your life. The word teleos means complete, be whole, be thoroughly unified, just as your Father in heaven is complete, is whole, is thoroughly unified. Jesus is saying, be complete and whole externally and internally as your Father is in heaven, in action and emotion and motivation behind your actions. That is the kind of righteousness that will exceed the mere external righteousness of the Pharisees. And that is the kind of righteousness that your Father in heaven actually desires. Later, a Pharisee, a a lawyer, came to Jesus to try to trap him. And he asked Jesus this in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Everything that we just read? Exodus 20 through 23, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Which of all of those laws, of the 611, which is the most important? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Then he like sneaks in a second one. And he says, and second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says the entirety of the law, the entirety of the prophets who were calling Israel back to obeying the law is about loving God, is about loving neighbor. There are principles at work and behind every single law in the Old Testament that get us to, the principles behind every single law ought to get us to passion for God and compassion for people. We might even say that the book of the covenant, Exodus 20 through 23, and the rest of the Torah are actually like practical boots on the ground outworkings of the Ten Commandments which are all about passion for God and passion for people. You want to know what it looks like to uh, not steal or not covet? Well, here's what happens when you uh, owe restitution for killing someone's ox. This is what it looks like to have compassion for people, to love your neighbor. And this is where remembering that the Torah is actually a narrative helps us. Jesus does not just fulfill the individual statutes and regulations, though he does that also but he fulfills the entire story. We'll have more time to think through chapter 24 in two weeks, but the people in chapter 24, having heard all of this, the people in chapter 24, here's how they respond. You know how they respond? They say, yes, we will do it. We will obey. They are very, very motivated right now to obey the entirety of what they just heard. 
And yet, then they can't even leave the mountain without completely rejecting God, without completely rejecting the law. The entire narrative of Israel's future history will be that of hearing God's word and rejecting God's word. It will be a story of sin. It will be a story of idolatry, of rebellion, of faithlessness, of an entire story of a love of self and a lack of compassion for people. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. He comes, not like other prophets and teachers, showing how he relates to the law, but he comes and he appears teaching and showing how the law relates to him. Showing and saying that he is a true and better Israel. He is the one to act for Israel in distinct holiness. To act as a means, a conduit for blessing to the nations because they refuse that role. They refuse that vocation. He is to be the one to bring a new covenant through his blood. To be Messiah, a deliverer, not just out of physical slavery, but out of spiritual slavery. He is the one to bring the kind of righteousness that God the Father desires from his people. Jesus lives for his people and he dies for his people. Not with like credit card payments of sacrifice that were throughout the Old Testament once a year or throughout the year, but paying the balance in full at his cross. Not to be just a five-gallon tank of gasoline that the law might be a good gift, but there's no inherent life in a tank of gas, but to be the very transplanted new engine of the car that he might give his people new hearts altogether so that with a new nature, Jesus might begin to make his people become like him, that they might love and worship like he loves and worships, that they might act and react like him, not fully in one moment where they became fully righteous in one moment, but over the course of their lives. And so by doing this, the apostles and the book of Acts and then later New Testament writers would conclude that the law has found its endpoint. It's not bad. The law was never purposeless. It's not an evil thing. It has just served its purpose. It had a planned date of obsolescence. And it's no longer needed because Jesus has gotten his people to where they needed to be. It's not irrelevant. We shouldn't tear it out of our Bibles. There are unbelievable principles behind the law that it would perhaps do us really well to sit and think deeply about, hopefully in community. I think this is what David is thinking about when he's talking about things like, I meditate on your law all day, all day and all night. Surely David isn't talking about like just sitting there and memorizing what he's to do if his ox accidentally gores another person's ox. But David is thinking through what is God trying to teach me about his character? What is God trying to teach me about the nature of his kingdom? What is God trying to teach me about my response to others? In fact, this is the kind of thing that Paul exactly is doing in 1 Timothy 5. There's a law in the Old Testament about not muzzling your ox when it is treading grain. The ox should get something to eat while he is working. And so Paul sees the principle behind this law and he applies it to paying pastors. A church should not muzzle their pastor, but should allow him to eat while he works. Thank you. There is a principle that Paul is gleaning from what that means, even though now Paul in 
a first century Roman context might not have any oxen that are training grain, treading grain. Now, this kind of thing takes work. This kind of thing takes slow meditation. It takes godly wisdom to read through Exodus 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 and say, what is God trying to teach me here about his character, about how I should care for my neighbor, about how I should love God? It takes community. It might take even a study Bible or a commentary or two to think through original context and what these things might mean. But it is rewarding work. And by doing this kind of work, it doesn't take us back to living under the Old Testament law, under the Torah, but under what Paul now calls living into the law of Christ, the law of love, of pursuing justice and mercy in our own communities and with the people who surround us. That of deep and actual love of God that is explained and then worked out in the New Testament. We can now, here's the thing, we can now eat pork sandwiches. Praise the Lord. We don't keep kosher laws. See Acts 10, see Acts 15, how the apostles decided that that to be true. We no longer have to keep the Sabbath. We no longer have to sacrifice animals. See Colossians 2 and Hebrews 10. To do any of those things in a way to keep the law, to say no more pork sandwiches, just like Israel was doing, and we need to go back to these sacrifices, would be like Frodo and Sam going all the way back to the prancing pony because Gandalf at one point in their story told them to. But that is not to say that we now in 2019 just get to make up our own new morality. This is what feels like loving God and feels like loving my neighbor to me, so then therefore it must be right. No, both the principles behind the Old Testament law and the explicit teaching of the New Testament law of Christ still have much to confront in our modern ears, our modern sensibilities, and our modern expectations. But here's what the Torah does. The whole narrative, it prepares us as readers and gets us to the point where we see ourselves in Israel. Where we see ourselves as weak and helpless on our own with good intentions of yes, we will obey and then failure. We see ourselves as selfish and self-serving on our own. The law brings us to our knees initially and then ongoingly puts us in a place of a constant state of, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. I want to respond in faith and obedience. Help me. Jesus, Messiah, thank you for acting on my behalf and delivering me from the evil in my own heart. Make me perfect. Make me wholly unified in external and internal action and motivation. Help me to more and more hear and obey. Unite my heart and action so that I have one motivation, the motivation of love. Maybe so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that all of that might be true. Give us wisdom to understand and discern your law. It is difficult for us to understand. We pray for your help. Forgive us for the ways that we are still stubborn, for the ways in which we do not listen, that we do not obey. Make us, your people, into a people of love, into a people who are distinct among the nations so that those around us might see the wisdom and the love of God whom we serve and that we might actually love and serve others well. For your sake, and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Deliverer, our 
representative, our advocate, our lawyer, our savior. We pray all of these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.